Hello, and welcome to the Influence Change at Work show. I'm your host, Heather Stegel, founder and change facilitator at Encleria, where you can accelerate your influence and overcome obstacles to change so you can make a bigger impact in your workplace. Today, my guest is Brian Ahern, who is here to share how to use the science of persuasion to sell change. Brian is the Chief Influence Officer at Influence People, LLC, an international speaker, coach, and consultant. He specializes in applying the science of influence and persuasion in everyday situations. Brian is one of only 20 individuals in the world who currently holds the Cialdini Method Certified Trainer designation and one of just a handful to have earned the Cialdini Persuasion Trainer designation. These specializations in the psychology of persuasion were earned directly from Robert Cialdini, PhD, who is the most cited living social psychologist on the science of ethical influence. Brian's blog has readers in more than 200 countries and his book, Influence People, Powerful Everyday Opportunities to Persuade That Are Lasting and Ethical, which I have to say, I love it when people find great acronyms, and you did. (laughs) So, People, Powerful Everyday Opportunities to Persuade That Are Lasting and Ethical. Uh, His book was an Amazon bestseller in several categories, and his LinkedIn learning courses have been viewed by more than 90,000 people around the world. So, Brian, welcome to the show. Thanks for being here. Thank you, Heather. It's my pleasure. And uh, I appreciate you recognizing the word people in the acronym. <laughs> oh, yeah. I, yeah, I love it when I find that, you know, acronyms like that say, wow, that was actually just, meaningful and it works. <laughs> yeah, it's, it's been a great lever for me when I do presentations. And I wish I could remember when it hit me, but it was a long time ago. It just occurred to me that influence is all about people and it just came. Uh, powerful everyday opportunities to persuade. They're lasting and ethical and it served me really, really well. Great. Well, so I know that for a lot of your career, you focused on the application of influence principles in sales. And often when we're implementing change, it seems like we need to sell it to either leaders or the organization and both. And so I thought it might be interesting to talk about it from that perspective. And so I'm curious, what do you see as the similarities between sales and implementing organizational change? Well, I had the good fortune of working pretty closely with somebody who led the organizational change management program uh, at the insurance company I used to work for, State Auto Insurance. And so I got a, a firsthand opportunity to really see the change process. And I think the parallels really are both are asking people to change and do things that in the absence of the ask, they wouldn't do. I mean, most people... Uh, When it comes to insurance, don't just pick up the phone and say, hey, I want to get some new insurance. I mean, they have to almost be asked and think about their need for change. And organizations, uh, most would stay stagnant because, hey, things have worked well enough and why do we need to change? So, So they both are requiring people to do things they probably would rather not do. Okay, yeah, that convinces me. Sounds good. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, So... Why don't we just dive in and you can tell us what are the principles of persuasion? Okay. Well, we focus on six principles of persuasion or sometimes known as principles of influence. And Robert Cialdini, who you mentioned in the opening, uh, he popularized that term. And he synthesized decades worth of research very specifically into the area of influence and persuasion. What is it that we can say or do that will cause somebody to say yes and take action? So these principles that we talk about He did not discover them, but he did put them into a framework where people could finally go, oh, I get it. That makes sense. 
when we talk about these principles, they've been around as long as human beings because they describe how we typically think and behave. So with that as the kind of the foundation there, some of the principles that we talk about, the first one is called liking. And this will come as no surprise to your listeners. It's easier for people to say yes to somebody that they know and like. I mean, that's we've known that from the time we were kids and who we would choose to play with and, and things. What most people don't understand is what is it that actually causes one person to like another? And that's important because then that can accelerate the relationship. You don't have to wait for months or years to go by to realize people like you if you can effectively and ethically tap into some of these um, behaviors. And, and two very simple ones are connecting on what you have in common, right? I mean, as soon as you find out somebody went to the same university that you did, or they have the same pet, or your kids are the same age, any of those things can instantly cause you to start liking that other person a little bit more. Or if you pay somebody a genuine compliment, people feel good, the endorphins are flowing, and and they will tend to like you more. So when we understand that, you know, we work to try to make those relationships happen. But I always advise people not to try to get people to like them. In other words, Heather, I don't try to get you to like me. What I focus on is coming to like you. And the same things that will make you like me will make me like you. But the reason that's so important is when you sense that, hey, Brian really likes me, you become much more open to whatever I might ask. Because I think that we all believe deep down that our friends will do right by friends. And of course, the more I come to know and like you, the more I do want your best. And so can you see how this becomes positive for both of us? Definitely. And it seems like if you're trying to get someone to like you, it might be obvious. Yes. <laughs> you start pandering or you know something like that, and it seems less genuine. And I think people might pick up on that. Yeah, it'd be like the used car salesman who's going to say or do anything to get you to buy the car. And that's not what we want. But we do want to build authentic, lasting relationships. And again, I think the best way to do that is for your listeners to focus on other people and say, how can I come to like those people? How can I come to like the people who I'm helping to implement the change, the people who are above me, just everybody. And I can very effectively do that by always focusing on talking about what we have in common and looking for the best in people and bringing that to the surface through compliments. So that's the the first principle that we talk about. And I always like to emphasize that one first because it really can almost completely eliminate manipulation. And some people are always wondering about, well, what is the difference? And I know we can, we'll talk about that later, but just keep that in mind that the more I come to like you, I would never manipulate my friends. And I know you wouldn't, and I don't think your listeners would manipulate their friends. So it's critical that we really establish that one right up front. The next pr- principle that we talk about is called reciprocity which is that natural feeling that we have to give back to somebody who first gives to us. So as an ethical persuader, we're always looking for opportunities to genuinely give or help others. Not so we can pull this big lever and say, hey, Heather, now you owe me. But, but so once we've helped people, we can then survey the people that we've helped. And when we need help, we recognize they're going to want to help. It's just natural for us to want to give back to the people who've first given to us. And so by living a life where you're genuinely looking to give and help, you then are multiplying your resources to have opportunities when you are the one who needs that help. 
And again, I think that's like critically important in a in an organizational setting to look for ways to help your coworkers, volunteer, offer your advice when you have the right skill sets, do those things that will genuinely benefit others because those are the very people who, when you need help, will be most willing to help you. If you've never been the one to volunteer and help, don't expect that other people are going to want to volunteer and help you. Makes sense. The next principle that we talk about. So, so these first couple of principles, I'll say, very, very good for building relationship. The next two principles that we'll talk about are really good to help people get beyond uncertainty. And the first one that we talk about is authority. It's very natural for us to look to people who have superior wisdom or expertise when we're making a decision. I mean, it's why we go to the doctor when we don't feel well. Maybe we consult an attorney when we have a question on a contract. We go to a CPA to get our taxes done. We might be able to do some of those things ourselves, but it'll take a lot more time and energy, and we probably won't come up with as good an answer as the experts. So when we encounter people that we know have expertise, it tends to dissipate any of that uncertainty. It's like, oh, well, if my CPA says this is what I'm supposed to do with my taxes, yeah, that's what I'm going to do. Now I don't have to worry about it. So it becomes then really important um, as somebody who is a persuader that you have credibility and expertise. You got to be a trustworthy individual, but you also have to know what you're talking about. And if you're somebody who can be trusted and is clearly good at what they do, it becomes much, much easier to get people on board and say yes and do the things that need to be done. Make sense? It does. And I'm curious, though, uh, because often when I think of authority, I'm usually thinking of who's in charge Mm -hmm. or an element of power or something like that versus it sounds like you're focused on expertise as the definition of authority. So I'm curious how you define that. Well, we talk about being in authority and being an authority. In authority is positional. You know, that's the cop with the badge. That's the boss with the corner office. Um, Being an authority is something that really goes with us 24-7. I think a great example was Dr. Martin Luther King. He was an authority on civil rights. It didn't matter if he was walking the streets as a free man in in Mobile, Alabama, or if he was sitting in a jail cell in Memphis, Tennessee. He was an authority on civil rights 24-7, 365. But then there are some people whose authority is positional, and when they lose that position, for example, the policeman, when the policeman doesn't have the badge on, you don't know that he or she is a, a, a cop, you may not listen to them at all. So I always say it's, it's not bad to have positional authority. You can certainly get things done. But if you can layer on top of that, that you really are an expert and you know what you're doing, you will have far more power to move people to take the actions that are necessary to help the organization. Makes sense. And also mm-hmm. when you're leaning on your positional authority, I think you're much more likely to abuse that. Um, yes. Because it's easier to force people to do something that they don't necessarily want to do, which is more towards that manipulation that you talked about. Right. And you may force people and you may get people to do things in the short term. But once that authority is removed, quite often people will boomerang, not back to where they were, but go beyond something, go beyond that into uh, behaviors that are detrimental to the organization, almost out of spite. So that's, you know, the the really good leaders, the really good managers understand this. And so they're always looking for how can I, how can I ethically persuade and motivate these people to take the actions? How can I 
help convince them so that they realize it's in their best interest and they're in the best interest of the organization, not just something that's pushed down from on high. Um, the other principle that helps to overcome uncertainty is called consensus, or your audience might recognize it more by the term social proof. Um, that says that when we're not sure what to do, we look to other people for our guidance. I mean, if everybody's doing something generally, we think, oh, that's probably the right thing to do. I mean, if everybody is giving um, a book or a movie a four and five star rating on Amazon, we feel a lot more comfortable about buying that book or watching that movie than if we see a lot of two and three star ratings. So we, we human beings are very much pack animals. We, we tend to follow the crowd. And I get some pushback on this. Sometimes people say, you know, uh, following the crowd, nothing great ever came from following the crowd. In one sense, that's true. You, you know, medical breakthroughs, technological breakthroughs, you've got to break from conventional thinking. But I would also contend that the human species uh, continuing to survive was a pretty great thing. And, <laughs> yeah. and our ancestors knew that there were safety in numbers, that staying together provided them uh, a safety measure that, frankly, if somebody was out on their own, they're probably going to be the first who are killed or eaten. So we still very much operate by that same mentality. And, and the way that your listeners can tap into that. They can, you know, when you're trying to implement organizational change, talking about what other organizations are doing with regard to change, but what's always most persuasive is talking about organizations that are most similar. So, for example, I came out of the insurance industry um, learning what a big medical company or a technology company did for change would not be as impacting as understanding what other insurance companies have done to implement change successfully. Because we will naturally follow the lead of people or organizations that we see as most similar to ourselves. So those are two principles. When people are in that state of uncertainty, can we invoke some authority, some expertise? Can we talk about what many or similar others are doing? And that will help to start to dissipate some of that uncertainty about, is this really the right direction that we should be going? Is there a difference between people seeing other people do something that then they also go do it or just hearing about people doing something, do you know? Um, both, both are effective. Um, ex for again, example, if we go back to Amazon, we don't actually see the people reading the books, but we do see the evidence that they have read the books. So when we can't actually get people to go to these other organizations and see the change that's being implemented, by talking about it or pointing to it, be it um, in, in news articles or if they're featured in write-ups or something like that, they're, they're still providing the evidence of here's what other people and organizations similar to us, what they've done, the ones who are successful are the ones that we should probably look to emulate. Okay. The, the third broad category that we talk about, so let's say there's really good relationships, people are not unsure about what to do, but they're just dragging their feet and they're not doing it. So, you know, your listeners could probably relate to this, your, your kids, right? <laughs> they, they love you. And sometimes it's real clear what they're supposed to be doing. They're just not doing it. And, and there's two principles that are very effective to move people to action. The first one we call consistency. And consistency describes the feeling that we all have to be consistent in what we say and what we do. We feel a pressure from within and a pressure from without to live up to our word. And first and foremost, it's because when we do what we say, 
we just feel better about ourselves. And then when we do what we say and other people see that, we also know that we gain credibility and we look better in their eyes. So it's a really powerful motivator. But the thing is, Heather, most people don't tap into the psychology here. Because when you tell somebody what to do, you're not engaging that part of them that said, oh, I made a commitment, right? If we tell our kid what to do, they haven't said, yes, I will do that. And so if they don't follow through on what we wanted, they don't necessarily feel bad about themselves. But if we look somebody in the eye and we ask instead of tell, and they say, yes, they'll do it, it triggers that with that thing within them that first and foremost, they don't want to feel bad about themselves. And second, they don't want to look bad in your eyes. And so my takeaway for your audience would simply be this, stop telling people what to do and start asking. Because when you ask and they commit, they're far more likely to actually do what is needed. This taps into a principle that we talk about in change management, which is about how we want to do change with people and not to them. So instead of, like you said, telling people, this is what we need you to do, um, if you more co-design it and involve them in, in figuring out what to do and coming up with what to do for themselves, mm-hmm. is that similar? Or yes. is it a little yeah. bit different? Okay. It's similar. And, and there's um, an individual named Tom Hopkins who wrote a book called How to Master the Art of Selling. And I went out to his boot camp a couple of times in Arizona. And he had a phrase that I love. And I think it speaks right to what you're talking about. When you say it, they doubt it. But when they say it, they believe it. <laughs> so if I can ask the right question and get somebody to come up with what they believe would be the best alternative they're far more committed to that than if I just tell them what to do. Because once we've verbalized it, it's, it's, it's part of us. And, and we tend not to doubt ourselves. We think, well, what I put on the table is the best course of action. It's the right thing to do. And they, they become much more committed. So learning to ask the right questions to, to get those constituents to, to raise to the surface what they believe are the right things will always be more effective than you simply telling them what to do. Great tip. The final principle that we talk about is called scarcity. And everybody will certainly get this one. We value things more when we believe they're rare or going away. That fear of missing out, it just drives a lot of human behavior. It's why so many of your listeners last weekend might have gone to uh, the mall because maybe they heard sale end Sunday. And they didn't want to miss that opportunity for some great savings. And maybe they convinced themselves they were just going to look But once they're there, they're more likely to buy. But they never would have gone in the absence of the understanding that the sale ends Sunday. So it's really important when we're persuading people that we honestly talk about what's the downside if we don't act? What will we lose? People will be much more motivated to act when they think they're going to lose as opposed to gain. And so I think within the realm of like change management, Trying to paint this picture of how wonderful the change will be will not be as effective as honestly talking about, here's what's going to happen if we don't change. Yeah, we call that the sense of urgency. <laughs> yes. And we don't, want to, we don't want to do it in a fear-mongering way. It's, it's not threatening or scare tactics. It's, it's just honestly talking about, if we don't change, here's the downside. And let people feel that a little bit because they'll be more motivated to move away from that than they will be to move towards something that's aspirational. So those are the 
those are the six principles. There, there's a seventh principle that Robert Cialdini uh, came out with a few years ago, uh, which is called unity. Unity is a lot harder to invoke than the ones that we just talked about. Unity um, goes much, much deeper than the principle of liking. Unity is about a sense of shared identity. Um, best example I can always think of is my father, who served in the, the United States Marine Corps during Vietnam. Ever since I was a child, I always had this sense that when my dad met another Marine, particularly one who'd been in combat, that he felt closer to them than me, his own flesh and blood. And now when I understand this principle of unity, it makes sense because those people shared something that very, very few people on the planet can understand. They, they have this identity where they can look at each other and almost know what the other's thinking or what they've been through. Um, there are ways to invoke unity beyond having served in, in the military, but it's a lot tougher. And so we don't spend as much time talking about that um, when it comes to something like selling and organizational change. But what I would tell your listeners is if it's there, if you served in the armed forces and you met somebody else, or maybe you um, played on a sports team, you know, maybe you played football at Ohio State or at USC or something like that, and you meet somebody else, you do have a very much a shared identity there. I would absolutely say tap into that because it will make it easier for that person to say yes to you and for the two of you to accomplish what needs to be done. Can you get that at all from being a part of the same organization? You can. Organizations that have really strong cultures can foster a sense of unity, but you have to be very um, proactive about that culture. Unfortunately, a lot of organizations, you know, they, they claim to have a culture, but it just kind of develops rather than um, being proactively created. Um, and we could have a whole conversation about uh, culture and, and how that's created. But yes, really, really strong organizations have a culture that, that fosters this deep identity. The first insurance company that I worked for I don't know if they still have it because I've been away from them for more than 30 years. But when I started my insurance career with the travelers insurance companies, the red umbrella, there was huge pride in red umbrella. And I remember when I was uh, looking to move into my first apartment, um, I answered an ad in the paper and it turned out that this individual uh, had an apartment that he only used part-time in Columbus. He was in the um, state government and, and lived in a small town in Southern Ohio. But as soon as he met me, almost sight unseen, no background check, he gave me the keys to the apartment because he was an insurance agent. And he said, if you work for the travelers, that's good enough for me. Wow. So some organizations do that. Okay. So let me just recap what I heard as the principles of persuasion. And I'll preface this with a question I'm going to ask, which are, are any of these more important than the others? And so you said there's liking reciprocity, authority, consensus, consistency, and scarcity, and also unity. Mm -hmm. So of those, is there anyone that stands out as the most important or the most powerful persuader? Well, generally, I, I say it depends on, on what you need. I mean, if you need to build relationship, then trying to use scarcity is not going to be nearly as effective as tapping into liking or, or reciprocity. By the same token, if you're needing to move people to action, Sometimes just appealing to your relationship is not going to be enough. You, you need to hold them accountable to what they said or, or what they might lose. But on a, on a whole, I will say that two principles are particularly important. The first one is liking, because 
the more people know, like, and trust you, the easier it will be for them to follow your lead. And the second would be the principle of consistency. Really focusing on asking the right questions to get people to make their own commitments to the change, I think those would be two of the most important ones thinking about the broad picture of organizational change. Okay. Uh, Now, in your book, you highlight the need for ethical influence, and you've mentioned that a few times here. And so I'm curious, why is that so important? And how do you make the distinction between ethical and unethical influence? Okay. Well, when it comes to ethics, if you, after the fact, realize that somebody had manipulated you into doing something, like they clearly lied, they, they told you something was on the line and it really wasn't. They told you you were going to get some kind of promotion and you didn't. You felt like you were manipulated. You probably, if you had a choice, would never work with that person again. And if you were thrown into a situation where you had to, I can guarantee you this, you would not give your best effort. And I know people might think, well, I'm going to still go to work and I'm going to work hard. But we all know there are times where we can reach down and find a deeper resource. And I'll give you an example. When I was in college, I worked at a golf course and I had to ride a bike. I didn't have access to a car all the time. And it was like a 10 mile ride. Sometimes I'm riding home at like 10 at night on a kind of a busy stretch of road. And so my game was always, I'm going to try to ride home tonight faster than I did the night before. And I was timing myself. And one night I'm riding, trying to beat last night's time, riding as fast as I think I can until I heard what sounded like a big dog barking and it sounded really close. And it was amazing how much more energy I suddenly found. (laughs) And I think that's an analogy too for how we work for certain people. We might go in and say we're working as hard as we can, but we get that leader that we know, like, and trust, who's treated us well, who's done things that truly benefit us, and we find that deep down resource. And so what I'm saying is when somebody manipulates, you'll never tap into that for that person. You may do what you need to do because it's your job and that's what you get paid for, but you're never going to give the same kind of energy and effort that you would for somebody who is doing it the right way. So that's why I think it's critically important that people are ethical in how they are moving people to take action. And how do you know if you're being unethical? Yeah. There's three things that we that we say need to be present in a request for somebody to be able to say I'm operating in an ethical manner. The first is truthfulness. So what I like to say is we tell the truth and we don't hide the truth. Um, It's not always enough to just tell the truth, but if you're hiding the truth of something that you know would impact somebody's decision and you don't say anything about that and they find out after the fact, they're going to feel lied to. And your defense of, well, you didn't ask, right? I mean, if I'm going to go sell my home and, and here in Ohio, we have basements. If there's a big crack in the basement floor and there happens to be a rug over it, right? If I don't point that out, if I don't move that rug and say, look, I got to be honest with you, Heather, there is a crack in the basement. You're going to want to get that looked at. Um, if I don't tell you that and you buy the house and move the rug, you're not going to feel like I was ethical with you. And my defense of you, you didn't ask, that's, that is not going to fly, right? All right. So, so we have to be truthful in what we say. We, I, as I said before, we tell the truth and we don't hide the truth. The second thing is that we only use principles that are natural to the situation. And by that, I mean, we don't try to manufacture um, scarcity, for example. We don't tell somebody what they're going to lose when there's really not something on the line. 
Um, we see this a lot with salespeople where they say something like, Heather, if you sign today, you can save 15%. But if I have to come back you know, a week from now or if you come back a week from now, I can't give you that deal. And that's almost always BS because there's really not something that's scarce. Now, if, if they said, look, this is a great deal. If they were a car salesman, this is a great deal. And this is the last car on the lot, you know, the, the last red car that you want. I can't guarantee that it's going to be here tomorrow. Th- that might be legitimate. But this old, I can save you 15% today, but I can't tomorrow. It, your listeners, if you hear that, just walk away because you're not dealing with somebody who's being ethical. Uh, so we don't manufacture these principles into the situation. We don't claim a, a another example would be a false sense of uh, social proof. We don't talk about all the other people who are doing something when they're not really doing it, just because we know that'll motivate people to action. So we so we use principles that are natural to the situation. We're being truthful. And then the last thing that we're focused on is creating a win-win situation. I like to say, good for you, good for me, then we're good to go. I have to know that what I'm asking of you is in your best interest, not just mine. Um, and this is always dangerous in sales because salespeople can be motivated by commission. And so some people will put you into the wrong home, the wrong car, the wrong electronic system, whatever, just because they want to make the commission sale. Ethical persuaders are looking at the situation and sometimes they're having to say, Heather, I got to be honest with you, what you need, we don't have, but you can get it down the street. And that'll only do, that'll only build my credibility with you where you probably think, you know what, next time I have a question, I'm going to go back to Brian because he was honest with me. And that may lead to lots of other good benefits for me down the road. But I I never want to put you in a situation where you could have gotten something that was more suitable for you, but I was only doing it because it was going to benefit me. So if we can do those three things, we're being truthful, we're using principles that are natural to the situation, and we are looking to create situations that are beneficial for both that's where we can feel that we're being ethical. Great. Thank you for clarifying that. Because I know sometimes it feels like, well, I know this principle, let's say, of consistency. So it might feel like if I'm asking a certain question, trying to get somebody to say something, (laughs) that it it might feel like manipulation. But what what you're saying is that it's more about the intent and whether or not it's true and Yes. These principles, they're neutral. They're neither good nor bad. They just describe how people think and behave. The ethics of it really falls on every one of us. And can we look ourselves in the mirror and and tell ourselves, I know I'm being truthful and I'm only using the psychology that's natural to that situation. And I am looking to create opportunities that will be beneficial for the other person, not just me. Great. Well, Brian, where can people learn more about these principles and about your work? First of all, if they, if any of your listeners want to reach out to me on LinkedIn, I post a lot of stuff on LinkedIn. I'm all over LinkedIn all the time. And so there's always opportunity to learn there. Um, I will tell you that if, if somebody reaches out and they don't put a message in like, hey, I heard you on Heather's podcast, I'm going to send a note back and say, how did you find me? I like to understand why people are reaching out. Uh, the second place would be my website, which is influencepeople.biz. And as you uh, mentioned during the the intro, uh, I've been blogging now for a dozen years. Every single week, every Monday, a new blog post goes online. So there's a tremendous amount there. 
all the podcasts I've been on, I catalog. So anybody could go back through the dozens and dozens of podcasts I've been on. I've got a lot of videos. So there's tremendous amount of opportunity to learn there. Um, and if people are so inclined, I would ask that they sign up for the blog. And every Tuesday morning, then they would get the email with the blog. And the final place would be uh, the book that I came out with that you mentioned, um, Influence People, Powerful Everyday Opportunities to Persuade that are Lasting and Ethical. Uh, it does not go deep into the science like Robert Cialdini's book and Dan Ariely and other social psychologists and behavioral economists. There's lots of really good work on that. What I found the shortcoming was people read that or learn about it and they're fascinated, but they don't always understand how to put it into practical application. And that's what my book is all about. How do you take this interesting psychology and very practically put it into play at work and home so you can enjoy more success and have more happiness at home? Um, that's available in ebook, paperback, and my audiobook just came out last week. So uh, pretty much any way somebody wants to consume the information, it's available. Great. Well, Brian, thank you so much for being on the show. You're welcome. Thank you for having me on. It's fun to talk about this in a context that's not always sales related. Great. And thank you for listening to the Influence Change at Work show. If you'd like to find more resources to help you influence change in your organization, including individual coaching, team facilitation, and upcoming training events, please visit enclaria.com. And while you're there, be sure to click on the box in the upper right-hand corner to access a free course about applying five drivers of change to influence change at work, which we now know is applying the principle of reciprocity. <laughs> so until next time, best wishes for making a bigger impact.